You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection's streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Doug McCambridge joins me today to talk about films from underrepresented countries that are only available on the Criterion channel. But first, I'll check in with Matt Gasteyer of the Complete Podcast to check in again on some basic navigation for the Criterion channel and some common concerns from new users. So stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion channel. If you enjoy Criterion channel surfing, check out Just the Discs, hosted by Brian Sauer. Just the Discs is a podcast about Blu-rays. In each episode, Brian Sauer will go through a stack of discs from various distributors and talk about them. Find Just the Discs wherever you get your podcasts. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. I'm here with Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast. He's also created a series of essential letterbox lists called How Do I Criterion? Matt, thank you for joining me again after a little bit of an absence on the podcast. It's uh, great to have you back. I missed you, Josh. I missed you so much. I I missed you too. I missed these (laughs) conversations. Uh, Well, you know, we've had, you know, months now of people either under some form of stay-at-home orders or people just going out less regularly. So because of this pandemic, we've seen more subscribers to the Criterion channel, and there are a lot of people that are just beginning to explore the channel's interface. And, uh, you know, I know that a lot of users tend to expect a Netflix or a Hulu-like experience. And if you're expecting that, there might be a little bit of frustration if you're not getting something that is as slick as an app that's produced by a company that has bottomless resources to develop a streaming platform. Uh, So, you know, I just think it might be a good idea to revisit some tips and tricks for basic navigation and uh, maybe kind of talk a little bit about the the platform itself and uh, why Criterion ended up kind of going the route that they did. So let's maybe talk a little bit about it. They, you know, so they went with Vimeo uh, and went with Vimeo's OTT platform, right? Yes. And I mean, obviously, when they were on Filmstruck, they did that purposely to team up with one of those seemingly bottomless pocket resources yeah. in Warner's hoping that they would be able to build a service uh, and and Criterion, which is a very small company located in a tiny office in New York City that can only put out, you know, <laughs> four to five Blu-rays a month um, is, is simply not able to uh, execute something like this. Um, and in fact, you know, people who are new to Criterion channel are not alone in their um, complaining. There's plenty of Complaints on the Netflix app reviews on uh, on the App Store. Amazon Prime finally just introduced user profiles for the first time uh, in their long history of, of uh, video streaming. So even if you do have bottomless pockets, this is an incredibly difficult thing to pull off. And, mm. um, you know, software development is not something that uh, that can be done overnight, even by something like Apple, when they release things, they, they have bugs in them. So, uh, you know, patience and understanding is definitely a big, a big part of the process of using any sort of technology. But that being said, what they ended up doing here was using what was essentially being used as a screening service. Uh, it was for the industry, also for independent filmmakers to be able to send links to people and view their work in a password protected manner so that they would be able to look at a full movie or or a short without uh, worrying about it leaking or piracy or anything like that. So what kind of has ended up happening is that uh, they are able to kind of execute what they want in their vision, but it's not tailored to their specific needs. I think the biggest issue that came out of the the Vimeo 
pairing is the external monitor issue, which is still mm -hmm. present, which is essentially that if you run the service through a laptop or a computer and hook it up to your TV, uh, it doesn't work. It'll tell you that that you're using an external monitor and you're unable to to do that. And that was created under the expectation that they wanted to prevent people from stealing their their content. That's not a criterion decision. It's just one of the things about the software that makes it that that they're unable to do anything about. Similar to uh, region locking being part of the deal for a lot of the studios when they sell rights, they region lock everything, not because they want to, but because they have to. And so that's, you know, an example of, of something like that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I will often, you know, watch Criterion Channel on my iPad when I'm traveling. And uh, I thought, hey, you know, let me, let me see if I can hook my iPad into a hotel TV and see if that works. And uh, it, I ran into that that external monitor issue with the iPad as well. And it's part of the part of the VHX software. You know, Vimeo is trying to protect the work of filmmakers, and they don't want people running, pirating films before they're released. They don't want you know the piracy is a big issue in the industry. And uh, they're really doing their best to uh, make sure that their service is secure. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's a really good read on it. That this is just a factor uh, that is part of the software issue. But it is very understandable, especially in this day and age where most TVs come with apps for the major services, and so yeah. there is less of a necessity to have an Apple TV or a Roku or a Fire Stick, but this Criterion channel is not available yeah. on those TVs. Uh, it's not available on a, a PlayStation, which is less of a concern to me, but I think you know it's understandable that people want to be able to use this service without having to buy another device. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it just happens to be what it is. You know, on a much smaller scale, the fact that the Vimeo service was constructed around the idea of seasons or series of things as opposed to the bundles that Criterion is using them for means that every bundle, uh, the movie is listed as like episode six in the bundle. Yeah, It seems yeah. like something that would be so easy to fix from like a logical naive perspective which <laughs> i include myself in that but yeah uh in that naivete but um it's it's just one of those things that they kind of have to to run with to, to use as a workaround because otherwise the development costs would be so high yeah so this is uh kind of maybe a little inside baseball but uh, so i work for a religious organization and we have a hundred churches that are all moving towards live streaming because of the pandemic. And I actually reached out to Vimeo to talk about the possibility of uh, using the OTT service for a hub, thinking, hey, this might be a really great way to provide a resource for our churches so that they don't have to sort through, you know, do we use YouTube? Do we use Facebook? Do we use Twitch? Do we use any one <laughs> of a number of different streaming platforms? You know, if if I could create a, a an app, then that uh, we put up on you know whatever device people want, and uh, maybe there was a way to do that. Uh, but in just some of my initial conversations with them, the skin that they use is so extremely limited, and that any changes to it becomes um you have to hire your own developer you know that that becomes its own there there there's a, a whole other step then in integrating the live streaming aspect or integrating any other changes that you want to make uh, otherwise it's just kind of a blank skin that you plug your information into and so yeah i think that even that change of season or of uh, episode to film you know might require a coding that you know might be cost prohibitive right and i think that that gets us to that that point of you know criterion is a 
small company working out of a office in New York, right? Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned uh, before we started recording that other smaller services have also signed on to Vimeo. Ovid, which which I use and was was frustrated with the switchover because it eliminated my my watch list. I had to rebuild my watch list. Uh, Shout Shout TV also uses it. And, you know, I speculated that it's possible that these these services are all even grouping together mm-hmm. as part of this Vimeo deal to save save costs because th- these are not major operations. We like to think of companies like Arrow or Criterion or Shout as being um, kind of significant players in the in the film industry, at least in the home entertainment industry. But they you know, it's a, it's a small industry. They're small players in a small and ever shrinking industry. So yeah. I think, you know, the, this, this is the opportunity that they have to kind of get revenue for their, their content that's not being bought up and shown on services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, but it's not, uh, they they, they have no delusion of grandeur, uh, when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that we're going to see more boutique streaming services make the switch at some point because the cost of maintaining your own app, I imagine just trying to keep up with updates, trying to keep up with ever-changing specifications for all the different devices that you're on can get cumbersome at times. And having a third party that does all that for you must be a really attractive proposition. Yeah. And, you know, I will say that for any frustrations that we run into with navigation or search functionality or any of the little glitches that you run into with the Criterion channel, the fact that that content is there and the fact that uh, using a third party developer for the app makes this a much more viable ongoing product uh, to me just outweighs any of those minor inconveniences oh definitely and and i mean especially the switch over from filmstruck to the channel it was about five or six months six months i think you know add on at least a year to that if they build this thing from scratch so that was a, a unique opportunity to keep a lot of this um, content that we've talked a lot about and that you talk about with Michael of their permanent streaming library available so quickly again and not, not keep it in the dark. Yeah. What have you found? I know, you know, we, we both use a variety of different devices and methods of accessing the channel, but what's your best viewing experience with the channel? So I, I think that the, iOS experience and the Fire Stick have gotten a lot better. I think I have general problems with the Apple TV app. Mm. In particular, the pictures don't load for about five minutes when I start using the app, which wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for the fact that the time is on the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) So if I'm going to like, you know, I want to watch something on my list that is, you know, under an hour and a half because I'm folding laundry or uh, you know, I want to get to bed soon or something like that. I have to wait <laughs> or or go on my phone or something. It's a small nit to pick, but, um, you know, these things kind of do add up. I've also found that the syncing of the audio uh, is not spectacular on the Apple TV. And sometimes mm. it will be slightly out of sync. I think the Fire Stick has made a lot of progress. You know, I, I recommended the Roku a couple of episodes ago yeah, because it had gotten such good reviews. And I think in general, it's the best, the most flexible kind of streaming device that there is. But then you're not getting HBO Max. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually you will, I guess. Uh, who yeah. knows? But, you know, I think uh, I think the Fire Stick has come a long way. If you're in the Amazon ecosystem, I'd probably recommend that. If not, you know, I think the Roku, just because it is... Uh, not tied to any one giant media conglomerate is probably the best bet. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I have the Apple TV, and I noticed a syncing issue, I think, with one of the first films I watched. And then 
I restarted it and it was fine, but I do live in perpetual fear. I, I watch with headphones an awful lot and uh, I always worry that I'm going to get a badly synced film and uh, yeah, it, worse it, than that. <laughs> I can't tell if it comes and goes a lot or if it's that I'm not watching as many English language movies for a while because mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to notice when it's a foreign film because you're reading the subtitles while they're talking. Yeah. 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 When we look at when people are trying to figure out how to find things, you know, a lot of times they typically stick to the front page and just kind of look through the swim lanes or the search. You know, so if you're if you're looking at the swim lane features, how do you recommend people use that front page of the the app? Well, I rarely use the front page, I would say, you know, I I look at it to see, you know, what, what they're kind of featuring at that moment. But when I go to the front page, it's usually to go to the new, new releases, the movies that they've Mm. added that month and the titles that are expiring at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. And I very rarely even look at what's on the front page. I'll just scroll all the way over to the see all option, which I wish they would put at the front for people who, who, or, or, or at least you could, you know, uh, scroll to the left to get to the see all because that to me it's it's just a much easier way to look at everything and and you know they they don't even show you everything on the front page and when you go to the see all they're showing you the first you know 15 things or the things that are already on the front page so it's kind of a, a weird structure in that way yeah um but those are the two things that i use the most uh, you know as we've discussed i have come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to watch everything that I'm, I want to watch before it expires. But yeah, I do like to prioritize five to 10 things just to, to try to get them in before the end of the month. And then, you know, adding a bundle, I think is, is more useful when it comes on the service than adding individual movies from that bundle that you want to see. Yeah. Just because it's very difficult to be able to find what bundle a movie is in when you're when you only have that movie in your watch list. So I think that's one of the problems with the services that you can't sort of click back to whatever it is that 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 movie was included in on most of the uh, the devices that you access the the website with. So that uh, that's a frustration that I kind of get around by by just adding bundles rather than individual movies. Yeah, and that's a really good approach because then when you add the bundle, you also add in any supplements that might be included yeah. with that bundle and just allows you to have the entire package rather than just the film itself. And yeah, I, I find myself when I'm doing my... Uh, when I'm trying to prep for an episode and I see the uh, expiring titles, what I will end up doing is search for the film and then see what collections it might be a part of and uh, try to search for those collections as well. So that way I can figure out where it is because it isn't necessarily as intuitive. And I think it's the, the ways that the, the service and the, the Vimeo platform. Yeah. Uh, does its taxonomy for films and having tried to do some some programming on my own website getting those taxonomies uh right is such a pain <laughs> that it uh it it is uh it's a challenge to get those easily searchable right yeah and it's it's frustrating too like i understand why they don't put the bundles that are going to expire into a list because you know, a lot of these bundles have permanent titles in yeah. them that are not going away, but it would be nice. You know, I I kind of can piece together what the bundles are because yeah. I pay such close attention, but I don't think most people, you know, keep up enough with the service, nor should they, to know, okay, this is expiring. So that means that all of the Gary Cooper titles are expiring because there was a Gary Cooper bundle. Yeah. So I, I, I think that it would be better for them to be able to indicate that in some way but at the same time i understand why they don't because so many of their titles are part of the collection it would be great if they could sort of say this bundle is expiring and but note the titles that are not leaving because they're 
a permanent part of the collection or there's some in some other bundle as well. Yeah, or find some way to even include in the description the part of this bundle. Even something as simple as that could save us a little bit of headache there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, uh, we've talked a little bit about the the difference between, you know, one of the issues with search is that it searches everything, which is both a good and a bad thing. How do you recommend people navigate the search on the apps? Well, it is very uh, difficult. Um, <laughs> you know, you have to be pretty specific if you know what you're looking for. You know, if you if you don't know what you're looking for, I tend to lean towards, especially if you want to add things to your watch list, like if you want to see all the Ingmar Bergman movies that are on the channel, you know, to go to the videos rather than the collections, mm. just because you get the individual movies, you can pick whichever supplements you want to see, and it'll tell you the time, the running time, which mm -hmm. just I personally find useful. And when you click on the actual movie, you're clicking on the movie to play it as opposed to having to click through the bundle and then into the movie as well. You know, I think in terms of how people use the search versus the all films list, I think that's really going to be a matter of, of personal preference for people. But I think that generally speaking, you know, you can get pretty creative with the search if you want to, you know, if you see, a, a, I think we've mentioned before, if you see, a supplement that you really like from somebody search for that interviewer and they'll yeah. t that will tell you you know how many supplements are on the service if they have a commentary track on the service things like that are opportunities that you just don't have on a conventional streaming service and it'll not only help you kind of see th that person's other commentary but will probably uh, allow you to discover other similar films that you will probably like. Because if you watched a supplement for one movie that a person covered, there's a good chance that, you know, that person has covered other movies that you would probably like. I think that's probably a more useful way to use the search than just seeing what's on the service. Because ultimately, I mean, there's there's so much on the service and pulling things up is, is going to, I think, be less fruitful than just allowing them to guide you uh, with their curated bundles um, and then digging into the all films just by sh sorting by genre. If there's a particular genre you want to see or decade that you like, um, I think that's more useful than just kind of like rooting around the, the search function to find something to watch. Yeah, I think that all films on the website is a really handy tool as you're maybe mapping out what you want to watch and finding films to add to your list. Yeah. And, and I think since we last talked about this, you know, the, the criterion channel is now included on letterboxd as a streaming service so that mm. you can filter if you're, I think this is only for, for pros on letterboxd, but yeah. it's a very low fee. It's a couple bucks a month and you can filter by, movies that are streaming on the Criterion channel on any list. So, you know, if you, I used to have a, a list of all of the Criterion movies that were streaming on any service that wasn't the Criterion channel. I mm -hmm. deleted that list because there's no use for it anymore because yeah. you can just go to the list of Criterion films and find out which ones are streaming on your service. Um, yeah. And vice versa, you can go to the list of the you know, uh, Sight and Sound 250 or the uh, They Shoot Pictures, Don't They Top 1,000 Movies of All Time and Sort by Criterion Channel. And that'll tell you all the quote-unquote best movies ever made that are streaming on the service. So that's really an ideal place to to find something new to watch if you're looking for kind of the, the cream of the crop that, that you haven't seen yet. That's great. That's great. Finally, Maybe let's let's talk just a little bit about the list and some basic. Do you have any tips for people as using their list? Some ways that people might avoid uh, list clutter or some ways to rearrange the list quickly. Well, I definitely recommend keeping your list down in terms of the overall number because it is going to get overwhelming. And if you've had something on there for a few months 
you should probably just get rid of it. Yeah. You know, if it's going to fall, end up back in your life at some point, it will. I promise it happens. (laughs) Um, Usually the way I construct my list is, is I have, you know, five to 10 movies from filmmakers that I'm working through their filmography on the site or particular movies that I've gotten recommendations for that are kind of at the bottom of my list that always stay there because they're permanent titles in the collection. And then I really focus on bundles that have come on the service that I know I want to get to and individual titles that are expiring in the next month. So that way I can focus on just kind of like the things that I know that I want to get to and not worry about everything that I want to see because that's going to get really unwieldy really quickly. So I I think that's ultimately the way I go about it. For people who are new to the the podcast, uh, one thing I found to be really useful, since you can't um, rearrange your list manually, if you remove something from your list and add it immediately back and reload the site, it will go to the top of your list. So if there's you know, if you're at work and you are thinking about your movie for that night and you look through your criterion list and there's three or four movies that you think you might be in the mood to watch, you can add them, you can bump them all up to the top of the queue. And then that way, when you're on your your TV, you can make that decision a lot easier and, and less painful. Yeah, yeah, uh, that has been I think that was uh, from our very first episode of the podcast. And that is a trick that i use every month it's such a really handy tool to bump those those expiring titles up to the top of your queue and make it a little easier to find so that you're not sorting through a list i my list is much longer than yours but it it definitely helps keep those those titles up there a little fa- farther up. So, yeah, that's really helpful. Some of the things that I've been seeing on our Criterion Channel Club Facebook group, there are a lot of a lot of kind of things that people have on their wish list for the channel. People are, you know, would love to see the ability to rate titles and have you know, better integration with the Criterion website and more of a social component and sortable lists. And, you know, I think these are all things that are lovely ideas, but I just don't imagine these coming to the channel based on the way the Vimeo platform works. Do you, I mean, we, we only know what we know. We're not by any means plugged in to criterion but uh based on our on your assumptions on what you've seen the changes that they've made have been pretty much cosmetic so far correct yeah i'm not aware of anything in terms of sort of additional features that they've incorporated i mean thinking about the things that you just mentioned i honestly have a hard time believing any of them will happen with the exception maybe of sortable lists. If Vimeo is able to kind of do something with that, you know, I I think they gave up on a lot of this stuff when they abandoned their, my criterion portion of the website. And I think they think of a lot of this as being things that letterboxd can do and can do better than they would ever be able to do as a small company. You know, I, I don't really see the value, to be honest, of of rating titles or of a, a social component when you have something like Letterboxd there that can do all of those things. And in terms of interaction with the website, my hunch is that, you know, they, they've been drifting more and more towards the website as a shop. And I mm-hmm. think that kind of makes me hesitate to feel like they're really going to be you know, there, I guess there's a possibility they could put sort of like a link to purchase the movie if it's a movie that they've released physically on the, the channel service. But, you know, I'd be surprised and I would definitely be surprised if they started listing films that are available on the channel on the website that that have not received a physical release simply because I think that they really focus on, on that as kind of their shop more than anything yeah. else. Yeah. And uh, what I I think the most interaction that we get there are the the direct links on film pages from films yeah. that that they have released on disc to their digital 
version in the ch- on the channel. I think that's probably about as integrated as we're looking. And I don't believe that they do that for limited engagement titles. I could no. be wrong, but I, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's just the permanent ones that are available to stream. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, to me, I think this is probably what we're looking at unless, you know, in a few years, there's a, a larger overhaul of the Vimeo platform and Vimeo un- unveils some new features that they're working on that are of a, of benefit to Criterion. I will say, I think user profiles would be great. I think, yeah. you know, most, most, I think most people don't need that um, for yeah. From a criterion service you know it's not like you're gonna have the kids profile um <laughs> but yeah but i mean my kids are really into michael haneke so you know I mean, <laughs> but you know i know that's not everybody's bag but i you know i i think it would still be useful you know i could even i'd even like to use it just for like one list of like my crazy you know amounts yeah. of things i want to get to eventually and then just a tighter list on on a different profile but it doesn't, I, it, you know, it doesn't seem as necessary as it does for something like Netflix or Amazon. Yeah, well, I know on Netflix, I actually set up a profile that is just kind of their digital releases that I know I want to be able to revisit that I know will probably never yeah. get a physical release, you know, for some of those types of things. So, you know, I think there can be some really cool uses for separate profiles because mm. yeah, like almost like a permanent library. Currently. Yeah. So I think there can be some really cool, cool approaches to curating your streaming services in some new ways. I think um, that's a Josh. I'm, I'm ready for this. Yeah. They, they need yeah. a watch list <laughs> and a collection. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that could be really cool. cool. Well, thanks for joining me today, Matt. This was really great. Yeah, thanks for for having me back. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So, just really quickly, you know, where are you currently in your uh, with the complete podcast? What's going on with that right now? Well, um, we released our red episode, so we are done with the movies. I'm trying to build up momentum for our, for a wrap up episode. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. tough during a, a global. Uh, pandemic and a racial reckoning, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yep. but I'm yep. working on it, and uh, yeah, so so we'll hopefully have that around the time that this gets put out, or or maybe the next episode. But uh, then we'll we're going to take a little break, which we're kind of already doing, and uh, and then we'll we'll come back with a another season on the shorter side um, for for a bit, and uh, so it, it'll be it'll be fun. Very cool, very cool. Where can people find you online? I am Matthew E.G. on Letterboxd. Uh, I I'm off Facebook. I'm over I'm over Facebook. So I'm uh, I'm I can't I went back to Twitter, but I'm not really doing a lot on there other than talking about movies and sharing my cocktails that I make. Um, awesome. I'm Matthew underscore E underscore G there now because I deleted my old E.G. account. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, we'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Doug McCambridge and I discuss films from underrepresented countries that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out The Robert Taylor Odyssey, a blog written by Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor takes you along for a journey into his cinematic obsessions, from the Criterion Collection and Film Noir to the films of Akira Kurosawa and the American Film Institute's Top 100. Find out more at therobertaylorodyssey.wordpress.com. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast, and we're getting ready to dive into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. Because the channel releases so much incredible content each month, it's really easy to overlook these corners of their permanent library. So here on the podcast, we try to pay special attention to some of these titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. 
In previous episodes, we've talked about how much representation a country like Japan has in the permanent collection. So we thought we'd take a look at some of the more obscure or underrepresented corners of the Criterion Channel's digital library this month. If you'd like to follow along at home, Michael Hutchins has compiled a letterbox list of Criterion streaming-only titles. You can find a link to that in our show notes. So, Doug, <laughs> yes, this was uh, this was actually a challenge, I think, for both of us to find stuff because, <sighs> you know, when we when we look at the 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 films that are streaming only, you know, so much is from Japan. We get a little bit. We get a, <laughs> some from the U.S., a lot from the U.K., yeah. uh, some from France. You know, I I try when I send out the themes to people to you know tell people to right. interpret broadly because. You know, I don't want to make no, I, this too too difficult for guests. But <laughs> no, I, I and I'm not saying that if you were going to bring me on for a subject, this was the worst possible one for me. But it, it was your list and Michael's list. They were very very helpful. But I am, and this is not. I'm not saying this to make me sound progressive. It's probably the exact opposite. It's my ignorance. I will watch foreign films all day long, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. But once I see it, there's subtitles, unless the location, honestly, is super important to the film, I kind of don't pay much attention to yeah. it. Like, if somebody asked me, what is your favorite French film? I really have to think for a minute. And, I, I'm, you know, I'll sit there and I'll go, hmm, I think the cabinet of Dr. Caligari was Germany, but I'm not sure. <laughs> like, it is, that is, that's just me. And And again, as you said, so many films are... Americans, so many films are, you know, French, so many are Japanese. So I was able to rule those out. But other than that, it took me a little while to look around and go, well, wait, how many films from this country are here? So yeah. thank you for those lists. Those were very helpful. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, I think, too, you know, some of the, the films from even less represented countries. I know yeah. uh, African cinema is severely underrepresented in the collection, but those often, as soon as they get put into the collection, are shuffled immediately into onto physical media as well right uh, yeah because they they really want to get those out as widely as possible i know and so uh, it's just like with female filmmakers right i have always wanted to do an episode where we could really focus on female filmmakers but mm-hmm. as soon as they get a film female filmmaker onto the channel uh if it's not if it's in the permanent collection that filmmaker goes directly onto disc yeah no and it's even something where i'm thinking about you know bunuel and i'm like well there's a ton of bunuel stuff in there so would that be underrepresented because yeah and that that's the really difficult thing and that's why i'm i'm sort of happy with my choices but certainly with the first choice i thought well there's a decent amount of Peter Weir. Like, I know that there might not be a whole lot of Australian stuff, but there's a decent amount of Peter Weir. So how underrepresented is that? Yes. Yes. Well, I, let's let's dive in because I do think sure. that, that, again, like I said, we can interpret broadly. And I do think that Australian yeah. cinema is underrepresented in the collection. I, I yeah. totally agree with you. So uh, let's dig in. What was your first film to talk about? So my first film and, and for for the films I chose that are part of the collection and, and even beyond for the films I chose outside of the Criterion channel. I tried to choose films that were, let's say, quote unquote, fun, perhaps a lighter touch, let's say, and films that were, if not 90 minutes, a little bit less than 90 minutes. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like, as I as I had said in our, our previous conversation, that's been what I'm sort of, you know, leaning toward or have been during this pandemic. Uh, so I want to give and, and it's funny, too, because you, you mentioned at the top, you know, my podcast covers kind of goofy, quote unquote, stupid movies from the 80s. And, and in there at the end, I always try and give recommendations. So I always try and yeah. elevate my recommendations. And, you know, even in I said Sleepaway Camp 2 is horrible. But in there, the guy who owns the camp was in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. So I was like, oh, OK, I'll recommend that at the end. Yeah. So on something like this, I'm not saying that I chose, you know, lesser or less highfalutin films or something like that, but I kind of tried to choose that. And and my first one is is the Cars That Ate Paris. And 
I have this this podcast here gave me an excuse to watch a film that I avoided for <laughs> decades because early before I knew anything about film, this movie has the dumbest title. It's got to be the running for the worst title ever. <laughs> so just hearing this title, I thought it was like an attack of the killer tomatoes type of film. <laughs> I, 100% I thought that that's what this was. And even then later on learning a little more about film, I learned that Peter Weir directed this, but I still kind of thought it was a cash grab by him and he directed a stupid goofball comedy or something. I did not know what this movie was about until I watched it. <laughs> so, yeah, I was I was very excited to watch this and I was I was really intrigued by what I saw. As I said before, I I don't really notice foreign films as to what country they're from unless it's so obvious and recently i watched wake and fright for the first time yeah and that film has such a bizarre heightened feel to it that the cars that ate paris sort of shares and i don't know if that's just australian films from the 70s (laughs) i don't Mm -hmm. know they they all sort of look like they're filmed on a soundstage in the middle of the desert. It's such a bizarre look and a bizarre and uncomfortable feel. As I was watching Wake and Fright, I sort of felt as uneasy and as uncomfortable as I did when I watched The Cars at 8 Paris. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if I should really get into what this this film is about because, uh, strangely enough, I'm not even 100% sure what it's about. I thought it was I thought it was about one thing. I thought it was about a, a town that caused accidents and then, you know, sort of captured this guy or kidnapped this guy and made him part of their society, part of this little town. But then there's this bizarre plot where the rowdy kids of the town drive around in cars that look like they're should be in the road warrior. It is a wildly insane film, but one that I, for feeling as uncomfortable as I did, this was such an enjoyable and breezy watch. Yeah. I think that was one of the very first films uh, that I saw from uh, Criterion. Uh, wow, so when, the exact opposite of me. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw it back uh, when it was on Hulu, when they had the okay. Hulu thing. And I just thought, this sounds really weird, and I feel like I need to watch something kind of dumb. And yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember, I, I totally agree. It, it has that kind of weird, it, it leaves you feeling uncomfortable and mm-hmm. just... It's kind of got that the griminess of an exploitation yep. film without being really all that grimy, you know. But I like the comparison yeah. to Wake and Fright. I think you're right. Yeah. I think that that feeling of being trapped is really just right. key there. Yeah, trapped or isolated. It's and also you know the ending is so violent, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to say gory. It's not gory, but it's such a crazy violent end to this movie but then at the very end it's kind of like well that just happened and that's how the movie (laughs) ends like it is it's it's an insane film and if you haven't seen it because you also thought it might be like attack at the killer tomatoes please take time to watch this it's it's certainly worth your time yeah yeah no i i think this is a this is a great really really interesting choice yeah i think that's great for my first film when I was looking through the the list of kind of films and countries, I ended up coming upon uh, Deep Crimson, mm-hmm. which is directed by Arturo Ripstein. It is a Mexican film. It's also got some funding from France and some other places as well, because <laughs> uh, you know international co-productions, sure. right? Yep. It's from 1996. This actually was, you know, we talk about The Cars That Ate Paris being the first film of Criterions that I saw on Hulu. Deep Crimson, I think, was the very first film that I saw of Criterion digitally back when they were still doing their thing with Mubi and the auteurs, mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing their their online cinematheque. Even if it wasn't the first, it was in that wave of stuff that I saw and uh, this was the very one of the first digital only titles that they uh, made mm-hmm. available 
for people to watch. And it is a it's a retelling of the Lonely Hearts Club killer or Lonely Hearts Killers. Oh, okay. So the same story that the Honeymoon Killers was based on. Yeah. Uh, it's transplanted to Mexico and it is a little gorier. It is a little more it doesn't have quite the same camp that the Honeymoon okay. Killers has. Mm-hmm. Though it does have this kind of macabre humor to it. Ripstein was, you know, we talked about Boonwell earlier. Ripstein was actually an assistant to Boonwell. Mm-hmm. And so there are some really interesting things that he does by taking this familiar and, you know, true story and removing it from its American setting and transplanting it to Mexico. It frees him up to do some some more things with symbolism and he is able to maybe make the class and religious commentary a little more pointed Mm. Uh, so the the murders that happen all have a little bit more symbolism to them they all have a little bit more everything is a little more pointed and so the deaths that happen the the people are killed uh, with instruments of their own kind of folly whether it's the the woman who is an alcoholic uh, ingesting poison in that that's in the alcohol, or the the overly pious woman getting killed by a statue of a saint, you know. So there's again a, a slight yeah. black comedy there, but it's but it's so horrifying that while Ripstein kind of encourages you to laugh, he also is indicting you for laughing at the same time and. By the time we get to the end of the film, you know, just like I think with the Honeymoon Killers, where it gets progressively darker and progressively more horrifying, mm-hmm. uh, by the end of the film, you feel this deep pit in your stomach over what you're witnessing. And so by the end of the film, any entertainment value that you might right. have gotten as a viewer or any any empathy you might have gotten, you start to feel that sour and you start Mm -hmm. to feel convicted and you start to feel any any semblance of um, romanticization that you get that you have for the killers like so many uh films about killers encourage you to do i think that this this film really does a good job of turning that on its head it's a beautifully shot i think that the compositions are just gorgeous and lull you in uh and it's also it, it's such a, an astute commentary on the vanity of these characters and the narcissism that that would lead people into this this scheme of seducing widows and going on the spree. Mm-hmm. It's it's really really good. If you're in the space of not wanting to watch more disturbing things, this is maybe not the film to watch <laughs> right now. I was I was really really surprised uh, by uh, how effective I found it a second time around. I did a little bit of reading about it afterwards and uh, came upon a review from Ebert back in the day, and he talked about how at the film festival screenings that he was at, people were walking out uh, by mm. the end of the film that they were just they were really disturbed by the film. <laughs> Yeah, I just think it's a really, really pointed commentary on on society and hmm. the final the final moments. Again, he changes things enough in the story that you don't know where it's going, and uh, it's it's well worth the the viewing, especially in comparing it to what Leonard Castle did with the Honeymoon Killers. Oh, okay. No, it sounds interesting. I might I might just have to add that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's good. I I keep hoping that they're gonna eventually release this one day, mm-hmm. but uh, it's been sitting in their digital library for a decade now, so I don't anticipate oh. it will. <laughs> it's not right around the corner. Right? No, <laughs> okay. no. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's good. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the second one. This is one that's been on my list to watch for a while, and uh, I actually toyed with it. Yeah. Uh, Before I settled on my second choice. So I'm really excited that you chose this one. Yeah. Maybe I can sell you on this one. (laughs) I'm not sure. My second film is called Pathfinder. 
And it's Norwegian, and the director is Nils Galp, and it's from 1987. This this film, and I, I, I guess I tried to do this with the Cars 8 Paris as well, is I wanted to choose films that really feel like the country or have so much of that environment mm. infused in it. And and I don't I don't want to say that when I think of Norway, I think of snow, but this entire film takes place <laughs> in the snow. Uh, it takes place in an area very, very north uh, Norway as well. And it takes place, I had to look this up because I don't think it says it anywhere, but basically around 1000 CE. And there's a young Sami. I think they're called Sami. I think that's what the native people to Norway are called Samis. And it's basically about a boy. He's a teenager, 15, 16. Uh, he comes home from hunting to find that his family has been massacred by sort of a group of an, like an evil nomadic clan. Think of like the Goths or the Vikings. He flees to this other nearby village and sort of warns these people and they all take off. They know that they're, you know, that this this clan is after him and that they're going to just slaughter them. What's wonderful is this clan is basically comprised of about 15 people. Everything about this is so small. Hmm. It's it's not a large cast. I mean, I would compare it to it's it's sort of a fun and and I use that term very loosely. There's a lot of violence in this, but it's sort of a fun teen action adventure is what I would compare it to. I would compare it to something like Red Dawn, but on the smallest scale possible, hmm. you know? So, I mean, I could imagine that this connected with teenage boys in Norway in the late 80s. I, mm. I could imagine that they really enjoyed this film. But basically, at, at one point, he tries to fight back and he is then kidnapped by this evil group and they force him to lead him to the rest of this village. It's very fun. It's, it's super exciting. It is shot so beautifully. Mm. I mean, if you, if you can just look at mountain ranges and snowy landscapes all day, it really gives you this sense of strange enough, you know, peacefulness. The negatives I would say is there's a unnecessary sort of romantic subplot fused in here and there are times where there are, I'm going to call them digital effects put in. It feels <laughs> very late 80s. It, it is sort of enough, strangely enough, to pull me out of the film. Anytime this happened, I went, well, that's a little bit bizarre. But it's fast paced and it is a, an enjoyable film. And this was nominated, I know this, for Best Foreign Language Film of 1988, but it lost to Babette's Feast, which there's no shame in that. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> and and the, inter the other interesting thing about this is the dialogue in here is not Norwegian. It is this Sami dialogue. Mm. And then the director subtitled it for Norwegian audiences, which I found absolutely fascinating, maybe much like a Dances with Wolves type of thing. This was just a fun film to watch and 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 like i said it is it is certainly violent at times but it is this wonderful sort of teen action film in the least sense of that word <laughs> <laughs> oh that sounds really really yeah. compelling yeah it's something that you don't get a lot of in the collection and, and this was very, very different than what I expected, even just based on reading the small description. I didn't expect something this light, this breezy, this so geared toward, you know, teenagers. And, and I think that that's something that this film has going for it if you're looking for something very different. Yeah. And I, I feel like what you're describing to me sounds like a film that normally... It's the type of film like The Breakfast Club or The Big Chill that would have just gotten an immediate release, you know, and, yeah. and gotten an immediate push because, you know, like you said, it was it was up for best foreign language film. And I, I love that that it's this is on the channel for people to watch. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is the the streaming home for it right now. Yeah. And even if you look at posters and, and VHS box art, it looks like Red Dawn. It yeah. looks like toy soldiers. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what this movie is. And I, I found that very fascinating. Oh, that's delightful. That sounds like maybe one of those like great matinees, right? One of those, those oh, yeah. films to watch on a Saturday afternoon when you just yep. really want to watch something fun. 
Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a total Sunday afternoon movie. Like you, you're not really looking for anything too deep, too intense. You got to go to work the next day. That this is a perfect film for that. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. Well, I'm gonna completely shift gears from that for my <laughs> last film. But you know, I I went with a, a film from Sachajit Ray. And while Satyajit Ray is pretty well represented in the collection, mm -hmm. films from India and Bengali films are not very well represented in the collection. It's a small fraction of what we get. And uh, I do think that this is a, a good time to bring up uh, Bengali cinema. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, Satyajit Ray... The, the films that are streaming on the service are, are films that I think get overlooked as well. And so the film that I'm going to choose today is called Devi, and it came out not too long after the Apu trilogy. And this is one that I just don't hear many people talking about in our communities. I'm sure that some people are watching it, but it's from 1960, and it stars a lot of his regular collaborators. So mm -hmm. it does star uh, Sumitra Chatterjee and Sharmila Tagore and it has uh, some really great performances in it uh, the story follows Daya who has married into Uma's family and she's gone to live with them and uh, Uma's father is wealthy and kind of relies on Daya to kind of help take care of things around the house. And Uma goes to, is, is off to finish school. And so she is left in the house alone with the father-in-law and uh, her brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and nephew. One night, the father-in-law, who is extremely devout, has a dream. And believes that Daya is the reincarnation of Kali, the goddess. Mm. And the next day falls at her feet and brings worshipers to the, to the home. And they begin to bring supplicants to fall at her feet. And mm. it sets the house kind of just on its, on its head. And the husband comes back and tries to take her away from this because it's this incredible burden that's been placed on her that suddenly they've made her divine and placed the the burden of life and death on her people are bringing their sick and dying children to at her to her feet and asking her to heal them and and it becomes this uh, incredible uh, weight she begins to question herself you know, what if I am really the reincarnation of the goddess? Huh. What if what if I am this? And the husband's trying to help her help her get away from all of all of the the responsibilities that are being foisted on her. So the the film itself becomes this really razor sharp critique of blind faith, and uh, it ended up being heavily criticized by uh, devout. Hindus mm. in the country at the time. I don't know how much uh, how much of Satyajit Rai's uh, films that you've seen, but you know I've seen most of the things that are on disc. But I I think there's this assumption that I have in my head that the stuff that hasn't been released yet mm -hmm. is lesser Rai, and this film was absolutely uh, magnificent. It is it's a masterpiece. I hope that they get this onto disc. It is. It, it's in need of restoration, so yeah. that I'm sure is part of what is the holdup on it. But it is uh, it is a heartbreaking uh, film, but uh, so powerful. And mm. uh, the if you've seen uh, the world of Apu or Upper Sansar, uh, mm -hmm. the um, the woman who plays his wife, uh, Sharmila Tagore, plays uh, the lead in this, and it's so lovely to see her in a leading role. She was great in Apusansur and she's even yes. better here. And 
the the lead actor from the music room plays the father-in-law the uh the actress who plays the mother in the apu trilogy uh plays the sister-in-law so you've got this really incredible cast that comes back to work with him uh in this film and i just i i have i don't have enough good things to say about this and so when you're ready to to do some more digging into ray um, yeah. This is a really great film, and it makes me eager to see the other films that are just waiting on the channel. Uh, there are about another five or six films that have not been released on disc that are there, and uh, uh, there's just there's more more to discover, and I find that exciting. Yeah, and that that sort of these are things I struggle with too because. Right now, if I'm going to buy any sort of disc, any sort of film on physical media, for the most part, not not always, it's a film that I've heard a lot about, but I have not yet seen. Mm. So uh, I'm kind of torn here where I want to watch this, but also I just want to hold off. And if there's a disc, yes. then I'd rather yes. have that because I've seen all of his stuff on disc. I've seen all of the work uh, that has been released on Criterion in physical form, but I haven't watched anything solely streaming yet and i'm a little hesitant to do that if there's a chance yeah. that this or, or anything else might be released yeah yeah and i do wonder you know uh, i know that the the restoration for the apu trilogy took so long mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, my assumption is that um the work <laughs> yeah to restore some of these films is just going to take take a long time because yeah. of uh, the damage that was done to so much of his filmography. So um, <laughs> I'm glad we have it here because this is great. I, I saw tried to watch one of the Ray films uh, on another streaming service years ago before Criterion uh, got the rights. And the subtitling was so bad and mistimed oh. that I gave up after five minutes. And I just said, I yeah. need to wait until there's a good print and a good translation because uh, I, I, there's no way to yeah. watch this. This is, this is going to be maddening for me. No, I, I get that. This is such a dumb thing, but man, yellow subtitles, I, they will burn my retina, and I cannot <laughs> stand that. That's such a dumb thing to focus on. But boy, I, I can't stand that. Yeah, yeah, and and that is, this is the challenge, right? I mean, I, I rewatched um, Kurosawa's Dursu Uzala recently. Okay, yeah. and that's one that is in desperate need of restoration too. And I am, um, I know that criterion is going to release it at some point, but you know, the question is, do you, how long do you hold out for? And, I know. Uh, I know. When, when do you just kind of give up and go, okay, I'm going to still watch it. <laughs> oh yeah. And we're so spoiled and I, and I hate to sort of say that and I don't even like it when other people say that, but <laughs> boy, are we so spoiled now? I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many things on these terrible VHS bootlegs I used to watch, in, you know, <laughs> in full frame. Like it was, it was ridiculous. I was more than happy to watch that at that yep. time. I was like, yep. this is so great. How, how else could I possibly see this movie? They're not going to play it over the weekend on regular tv yep. and now it's kind of like well oh yellow subtitles i can't stand that <laughs> yeah yeah oh well uh, that is four films to catch on the criterion channel that you may have missed the cars that ate paris directed by peter weir deep crimson directed by arturo ripstein pathfinder directed by niels gaup and devi directed by sajidit ray Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a, a really great conversation, and I think we've got some really great recommendations here. Oh, this was super fun. I appreciate you having me back. This is great. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, just find me. Find the podcast. Find Good Times Great Movies. Find Shits and Giggles anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find me on all the social media outlets, but I'm usually on there as my podcast, so it's either Good Times Great Movies or GTGM Cast. Just type those in. You'll find it. Go to Ask Jeeves. Type it in. You know. You know how to work the internet. <laughs> Ask Jeeves. Is that what you use for your uh, <laughs> right, search? <yes. laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Yeah, because it is 2003, right? That's right. <laughs> you can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at criterionchannelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to continue thanking all of our supporters. Thank you so much for really making the show what it is. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, Doug and I will return for a special follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss films from underrepresented countries that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.